Hey friends, your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish. Today, we are going to do a deep dive into Numenera. I have been running a Numenera campaign for the past few months, and I thought it would be useful to do a video where I dive deep into my experiences and offer some tips and tricks for GMs and DMs that they can either take from Numenera and bring into their regular RPG, or show what Numenera has to offer in case you want to run it yourself. I also want this video to be useful in case you want to take a look at Numenera and decide if it's the right game for you. I want to make sure that this video is useful for you. I expect a few things. One is that I expect that it's that you're an experienced GM, that you've run other role-playing games. You know what role-playing games are. If you don't know what role-playing games are and you're curious about them overall, there are other videos that can explain how role-playing games work in general. I don't expect that you've played Numenera before, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that. I highly expect that it's going to be Dungeons & Dragons DMs who are looking at this. And so there's a few things I'm going to offer. One is, is Numenera a system that you might want to actually run and play? And two, can you take concepts from Numenera and actually bring them into your game? So what is Numenera? Numenera is a high fantasy role-playing game. It is a D20-based high fantasy role-playing game. It's developed by Monty Cook Games, in particular Monty Cook, and they have a number of different designers that work for Monty Cook Games that have built this game. He did it about five or six years ago. It started off with a Kickstarter. I think at the time it was the biggest role-playing game Kickstarter that ever took place for a great big core book. And the concept behind the game is that it is set on Earth a billion years in the future. So it's very, very big and wide in scope and very, very long timeline. It's a high fantasy science fiction RPG. It's a, it's a science fantasy RPG. So it's not wizards and elves and traditional Middle Earth or European style fantasy. It is definitely more of a science fiction fantasy role-playing game. And I think it captures that really well. The scope and the scale of the game captures that really well. It's something that I really, really like about it. It uses a very simple rule system. You roll a d20, but basically every challenge in the game has a level, and that level is between one and 10. In order to figure out the difficulty for any given challenge, the GM determines a level between one and 10. In order to figure out what difficulty you're gonna have on a roll of a die, you choose that level and you multiply it by three. So if you say a challenge is five out of 10, you need to roll a 15 or better on a D20 in order to succeed at that challenge. So what this means is all of the math for figuring out whether or not you succeed or fail at something takes place before you do the roll and you end up with a target number. At the end, after you've done all your manipulation of this target number up and down, you determine the target number, the player knows the target number, the player rolls the die, the players always roll dice. The DM actually never rolls dice or very rarely rolls dice. You might roll for things like determining a cipher you might roll for determining like who's getting attacked but you don't roll attack rolls you don't roll challenges against the characters the characters always roll the challenge and the characters know what target they're trying to hit so they roll a die and if they hit it they're very excited and that it brings up a very interesting pacing for the game because it means that all of the mathematical part of it takes place before the roll and that way when the roll happens it's exciting and when and you know what number you have to hit or above and when you hit it it's very exciting and that way it doesn't create this situation where you roll the die and then you do a bunch of modifications and only then do you determine if it was success or failure. So that's, that's a really interesting style. That whole idea that the game basically sits on this 1 to 10 scale, including developing monsters, that when you when you develop a monster, if you, if you build a monster from scratch, you can build a monster just by picking a number between 1 and 10. 1 is incredibly easy. 1 means that in order for anybody to do it without any modification at all, you only need, need to roll a 3 or better. And if you roll a 3 or better, everything's fine. If a, a 10, on the other hand, means you have to roll a 30. 
Well, guess what? You can't roll a 30 on a D20 because remember, you're rolling a D20 to have your target number. So what happens is the characters have ways that they can lower the difficulty. They can expend effort. They have pools of resources that they can use to lower things. They might have training and skills. They might have specializations. They might have other things that lower what they call a step. And that basically takes that ladder, that one to 10, and lowers its steps, 10 to nine to eight to seven to six. If you can get it down to a six, that means you can actually succeed. If you were going to take a 10, like if you, if you have a challenge of a 10 and you needed to get it to the point where you can succeed at all, you have to lower it four steps. It's very, very hard for low level or low tier characters to be able to lower it that. But as characters get more powerful, they have more ways to sort of lower the steps. And I've seen it where we have like a level eight challenge and they're able to turn it into a level three by stacking up a whole bunch of different abilities to, to take that level and get it down. And that basically takes a level eight, which is impossible to roll in a D20, to something where you're going to succeed more often than you're going to fail by taking it to a three. Again, you multiply apply three by three and that's nine nine is your target number and you roll I'm, I'm glossing over the system there's a lot more to Numenera than that but I, I could spend an entire hour just talking about the rules and I don't want to talk about that but but leave it to say it is a d20 based system the rules are definitely different than D&D but there's something that you can grab onto it's not it's not a terribly difficult system to understand and it offers a lot of flexibility and a lot of freedom to GMs and that's one of the reasons why I, I like it so much so I wanted to talk about my top three things that I've loved about running Numenera I've loved Numenera for years I've always enjoyed this system from the minute that I back the original Kickstarter. I've played a bunch of one-shot games, but this is the first time that I ever played a long campaign. And we played a pretty long campaign. It's been 24, 25 sessions at this point. And it's given me a lot more experience in what Numenera is like and what it offers. So I wanted to offer the thing, the three things that I've really enjoyed about running Numenera. And the first is that I love that challenge rating system. I love the idea that you pick a challenge rating between one and 10, and that sets a baseline. And then the whole thing is negotiations on how the characters can lower that challenge rating to make it achievable or easier and that works really well i love that you can build monsters from the challenge rating imagine if in DD you could say okay i have a dc 15 my monster is dc 15 so i know what armor class it has i know what hit points it has i know how much damage it does i know everything that i need to know to run that monster i could get just from picking a dc that is essentially what you can do in numenera i can make a level three monster and that level three monster does three damage on a hit. It is has nine hit points, three times, three times three, nine hit points. It takes a nine or better in order to hit it. It takes a nine or better in order to defend against it. And that's basically all I need in order to run a monster. And even though in the bestiary books for Numenera, monsters can have more complications where they're good at some things, they're bad at some things. Their hit points might not actually be just three times their level. The reality is I just been using the straightforward, the straightforward system for building a monster and it works great. It's been really, really, it's been really, really enjoyable. So I love that challenge rating system. It's really, really powerful. I wish that was more transportable to D&D. I've tried to bring something like that more over to D&D and it's been, it's been difficult to do, but it's made me think differently about how D&D works. GM intrusions are really interesting. So the GMs do not roll dice. You don't roll attacks against the characters, but you can complicate the situation. And you complicate it with these things called GM intrusions. And the way a GM intrusion works is you, you the GM, says this new hard thing has just happened in the game. Maybe a monster has knocked you down. Maybe the wall is beginning to collapse. You, you decide like what happens that complicates the situation. And you offer experience points to the player. An experience point, a one experience point is kind of a big deal. So... You offer these experience points. They can use experience points to re-roll. They can use it to change something else. They can also use it to progress in their level. I actually split out 
level progression from temporary experience points. So I just want people to use it for rerolls. I don't want them to worry about using that for the, prog the progress of their characters. So instead of offering experience points for level progression, I do sort of event-based level progression, where once they complete a big quest, they get permanent experience points that they can use in order to evolve their character. But that idea of GM intrusions is really interesting. I actually don't like the name very much. I think that it feels intrusive. It feels like you're getting in the way. And instead of, you're just evolving the story. You're making the story more interesting. And when you offer these experience points to, to characters, you're making the story more interesting. The third thing that I really love about Numenera is that this, and this is probably the biggest thing, is the scope and the scale of this system is so wide and so big. It really shook my brain out of, it shook the cobwebs out of my brain. It made me think differently about every role-playing game. Everything, you can bring these elements of fantastic, of, of, of elements of fantasy, true fantasy, to your games. And instead of just having like a rocky tower, is there something interesting about this tower? Is there something huge in scale and scope? Is the tower actually just part of a huge cyclopean foot? Is, are there parts of the tower that are floating in space? Numenera, more than any other role-playing game that I've played, really expands your brain into areas of the fantastic. It tries, no, nothing is mundane in Numenera. And that is actually a challenge, right? It's, it's hard to get your brain to think in this high fantasy while you're, while you're doing it, to think big in scale and scope, to think about crystals floating in space, to think about weird dimensional portals that have kind of formed out of the very air. It's, it's hard to think that way, but it adds a lot of elements to it. And once your brain starts to pick that up, you can bring that to your other RPGs and make everything else more exciting. So I really love that idea. This, this RPG, more than any, has really pushed me to think about adding the fantastic into our games. I definitely had areas where I struggled with Numenera. There were things that I... That, that when I ran them, it was, it was hard, to, hard to run with them. And I wanted to talk about those two. One, there's no real way to understand how much of a challenge is too much of a challenge, particularly with monsters. There's no kind of encounter building guidelines. One of the books has a little bit where it talks about, this is generally how many creatures of what level would work well against tier zero characters, against initial characters. But there's no kind of scale. And I don't, I'm not looking for deep math. I'm not looking for something like the Dungeon Master's Guide. But I want some idea of like, if I put two level sevens up against tier three characters, is that going to be too hard? I have no idea. I've been running it for two dozen sessions. And I really don't have any idea how the challenge of a monster compares to the tier of a character. It definitely does. And I think there's some math there to figure it out. I think if you can look at it right, you can kind of assume that characters can lower the difficulty of certain tasks at certain points in their tiers. But it, how does it compare? If I have tier three characters, how many roughly tier four, five, or six monsters are going to be a real challenge for them? So I really feel like a game that has that much mathematical clarity could could do a little bit better about saying which challenges are going to be too hard instead what the game offers is it make build build encounters that make sense for the story and the situation which i am a huge subscriber to this is what i recommend when i talk about DD encounter building choose monsters and choose the number of them and choose the type of them based on what's going on in the story don't don't build these sort of cookie cutter encounters that are built just to like challenge characters of a certain level and stuff like that However, Numenera, I have no idea what the situation is because these monsters are all completely different. So unlike, I can, I know what orcs are like. I know what ogres are like. I know what liches are like. I know what wraiths are like. I can, I, I have a kind of inherent understanding because I've been playing D&D for most of my life. I have a good understanding of what the situation dictates for D&D. I don't have that for Numenera because every monster is crazy and different and weird. If you pointed at a monster, I would have no idea if that's a level two monster or a level eight monster. There's nothing 
nothing to tell me that one monster is different other than the fact that in the book it does. I don't know what that situation is, but if I had some guidance, if I had something that told me that generally speaking, this is like your, again, a deadly encounter threshold. And I bet you there is one. I bet you that I, if I sat down and spent the time, I could probably figure out that tier characters, you know, characters of this tier can handle this many monsters, you know, roughly equal to the characters and stuff like that. There's something there. I'm sure there's something there. And I don't need it to help build cookie cutter encounters. I just need it so I have an idea of like, have I gone too far? Too many monsters? Or is this going to be a real cakewalk? I don't really know. So that's, that's one trouble that I have. Along with that is it's not clear when monsters should attack multiple times. There's definitely an idea, like if you have a level six monster, that's a pretty powerful monster. It means that without any modifications to the roll, they have to roll an 18 or better to attack it and to defend it. It means it has 18 hit points and it means it does six damage on attack. But because it's so high, that six damage is actually not a lot when you consider that a level three monster does three damage. Two level threes are significantly easier than one level six because of that target number to hit it. The target number is way higher. So that means that that level six monster probably should be attacking multiple times if it's gonna if its threat level is gonna be equal to its defensive level. When should monsters get multi-tech? I've generally been saying that essentially when monsters get to four or five or six, that's when you might start giving them more than one attack a turn. It means that they might be able to attack multiple targets. When you get to seven, eight, and nine, they might be able to hit three or even four targets. I've just been using that as a general idea. And it's because I want the threat of the creature to be, I want the amount of damage that it dishes out to be in proportion to the difficulty of the, all of the rest of it, the difficulty of damaging it, the difficulty of, of attacking it, the dif difficulty of defending against it. And again, the, the book has text that says you can modify a monster, you can give it multiple attacks if it makes sense for the monster. Well, of course, right? Again, I'm making these things up from scratch. So of course I get to decide how many arms it's got or whether it's got different attacks and things like that. I could use a little bit more guidance about when certain monsters of certain levels should have more attacks or not. And I've been playing it by ear and it's been working fine. I haven't really had trouble. I don't think I need much. I think two, two or three sentences, maybe a tiny little table that says, generally speaking at these levels, this is when a monster is gonna wanna have more in one attack or to have some way it could be an eye beam that cuts across and hits him it could be multiple claw attacks whatever it is you probably want to have creatures of especially when you get to like five six seven and above you almost always want to have them have multiple attacks because you're only going to be facing a small number of them if you're facing a whole lot of level sevens you're in real trouble if you're facing one level seven, that's level seven's going to be a pain in the ass to hit, and it's going to be a pain in the ass to take, to defend against. But it's not going to be doing that much damage, because seven points of damage once a turn is really not a big deal. Seven damage to three targets once a turn, that's a big deal. So I think it's not clear when multiple attacks should, should be there. There's some trickery with the math on the player side that takes a little bit of getting used to, especially as the characters increase in their tier. One of the little oddities, and, and so Numenera changed a little bit from the original version of Numenera that came out about six or five or six years ago to the version that they have today, which is mostly the rules that you find in there are in a book called Numenera Discovery. A fantastic book. If you're going to buy one book for Numenera, we'll get into a buyer's guide, but if you're getting into one book, Numenera Discovery is the, the book to get. They made subtle changes to the math a little bit. They added a few little tiny little tweaks. It's not an entirely new version of the game. Everything in the old one is completely compatible with everything in the new one, but tiny little tweaks. And one of the tweaks they had is that when you apply effort, applying effort is essentially using a resource. If you're a DM, you can imagine, or if you're playing D&D, you imagine you're using your hit points to lower the effect of something. You normally would use three points 
of something to lower one step. If you're going to take a five and lower it to a four, you would expend three points. You have this thing called edge, which means you're particularly good at certain things. So if you're going to use your points from your mind pool and you have two edge, that means you only have to spend one point to lower it. That's great. The minute, if you want to lower multiple tiers though, which you can only do when you're at higher, higher tier characters. If you want to lower multiple steps, you have a level of effort. That's the number of times you can lower, which is roughly equivalent to like your, I think it's equivalent to your tier. When you lower it a second or third time or more, it's discounted by one as well, which means you only have to spend two points instead of three. That adds weird complications. We forget it all the time when we're playing. And that idea that the first time it costs you three, but you have edge. So then it usually doesn't cost you three, but your edge doesn't apply any more than once, which means you might get a little bit of a discount in your next tier, but the next tier is already discounted by one. It added a complication that made it a little harder for us to kind of calculate how much effort you have to spend to lower the tiers. This matters a lot more at higher levels. This is an experience I've had running higher tier characters, which I didn't really experience when I was doing a one shot because it never in a low tier character, you generally don't lower it more than one tier. So you never come up with this. But later on, we're doing it a lot. And when you're doing it a lot, you, you, there's this weird oddity of the fact that the second and third ones are discounted, but not by your edge. That was some complications. Another thing that they added in kind of the new version is this idea of player intrusions. And the idea here is that a character can, depending on the kind of character they have, they might have the option to actually jump into the situation. So I talked about how the GM has GM intrusions where they can change things up. Players can do it too. I don't want that to happen. Instead of them hitting my friend, I want them to hit me. And here's this intrusion that, you know, here's an experience point or some other resource so that I can do this. And they call it a player intrusion. I find them disjointing. I find that they break the flow of the game. As a GM, I'm kind of in, in in control is not exactly right, but in charge of the flow of the game. So for me to drop in GM intrusions isn't really interrupting the game, even though they call it an intrusion. It's me changing the flow of the game in different and interesting ways. Players don't have the same responsibility to keep the flow of a game running smooth. Instead, they want to do cool things that their characters do. And a player intrusion is more of an interruption than than I than I than I like. I'm not a I'm not a fan of them. We get we have them come up often and they they disjoint the game. They kind of pull things back. They sort of change something that happened. I might already be further and then we have to pull it back. There's a lot of stuff like that. So I'm not a fan of the the, the player intrusions didn't I, I wasn't a fan of those. They're new for me because I've this is the only the first time that I played Numenera using Numenera Discovery. And yeah, that, that was something that I, I didn't really dig. So if you're interested in Numenera, what should you buy? I have tons and tons and tons of Numenera stuff. I back all their Kickstarters. I get all of their books. I have PDFs of everything. I have, I don't think I have every single book they've put out, but I've definitely got most of them. And which ones did I find to be really useful when I was, when I was running my game? So the first thing is, if you can find one, every so often they do a bundle of holding. They do a Numenera bundle of holding. I don't know if they're going to do another one. I hope they do. If you ever see them do a Numenera bundle of holding, I would definitely jump on it because you're going to get a ton of material for not a lot of money. And it's by far the most efficient way to pick up lots of Numenera products. And it's the kind of stuff you probably wouldn't drop $20, $30 on every PDF to get. But if you're spending $30 and you're getting like, 20 PDFs, wow, you're going to get a lot of material that's definitely useful. So if you can ever get on a bundle of holding for Numenera, definitely do it. 
The next thing, though, would be Numenera Discovery. Numenera Discovery is the primary book for Numenera. It is the new core book. It, they often talk about it as part one of a two-part set with Numenera Discovery and Numenera Destiny. I'm actually not using Numenera Destiny. The idea of building cities and kind of building up cities, I've been doing a lot of that, but I haven't needed a whole other book to do it. So I've just been focusing on Numenera Discovery. It's a great big book. It's 418 pages. You can pick up the PDF on DriveThruRPG. You can pick it up directly from Money Cook. A lot of times it's on sale, so you can take a look and see if it's on sale. But it has really everything you need to run Numenera. It has character creation guidelines. It's got guides for running it. It's got a whole campaign source book for the whole region of the world for, for Numenera called the Ninth World. It's got a whole bestiary for a whole bunch of different monsters. It's got a bunch of adventures, I think four different adventures. So it's packed. It's really, really packed with stuff. It's a, it's a good big, valuable book that covers Numenera. It's the primary book you need. You really don't need anything more than this. But there are a couple of books that I have found myself returning to again and again as I've been running a longer campaign. So if you're just getting into it, I don't think you need to get any more than Numenera Discovery. Play it if you like it. If you're doing a longer campaign, there's definitely some books that I found that really helped, that, that proved their value, where I really use them a lot. And one of them is known as the Technology Compendium or Sir Arthur's Guide to Numenera. One of the things that the, the book does is it really is uh, Arthur C. Clarke had a big uh, influence on Numenera. And so they named, they named this book. It is a relatively short book, 162-page book. It came out pretty early, too. It came out very early in the, in the cycle of the books that came out back in 2014. Man, so eight years ago. I was saying five or six years ago. It was actually eight years ago. What I love about this book is it's just a huge book of random items. So one of the most powerful things that I really love about Numenera is this idea of a cipher. And a cipher is an odd object, a strange object that you find that has a, a, a good chunky bit of power to it, but you can only use it once. And this is a very, I'm going to talk about this, but it's a very transportable thing to D&D. I've been using it in my D&D games now for years, and I love it. So this is something I directly took from Numenera, put into my D&D games, and I just love it. And what's great about this book is it has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ciphers. It has so many of them. It's got multiple tables of ciphers that you can roll on, which is great because even a D100 list of ciphers, you're going to run out. You're going to start duplicating them. You're going to start hitting them more than once. It doesn't seem like you would. You're like, oh my God, there's 100. I have definitely found that when I'm rolling the base tables, eventually you roll six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 12, 20 times, you're definitely duplicating. You're hitting items that you've hit again. This is a great way to make sure that there is a, this is a great way to be sure that you're going to get a lot of different variants in your, your ciphers. I use this, I use this book all the time. You can see, so it's got five different lists of D100 ciphers. Some of these are in the core book, but a lot of them are in this book. So instead of having 100 ciphers, it's got 500 ciphers, which is definitely expand, I mean, obviously by five, right? But it also means that when we're rolling for ciphers, we're a lot less likely to get the same thing multiple times. I've used this time and time again. So if you are running a campaign, I think this book really helps. The other books that I would recommend are the bestiaries. There are three bestiaries. The Ninth World Bestiary, the first one that came out, the Ninth World Bestiary 2, and the Ninth World Bestiary 3. I like these books. If you've watched me do my prep shows, you've seen that I use these books a lot. And the reason why, it's kind of the same reason for ciphers. 
I need lots of different monsters that if I, I, because Numenera is supposed to be wonder and, and experience and seeing things for the first time, you generally don't want to run the same monster more than once. You, you, you'd be pretty rare. I've run some like the Orgolians where I ran them more than once, but even then I want to change the Orgolians up. I want to change up monsters so that every time they face these, it should be something new and interesting. That's something you try to do with Numenera a lot. It can be a struggle if you're used to like, hey, an ogre is an ogre is an ogre. In Numenera, you definitely want to have monsters that seem different, which means you're probably going to want to get a bunch of different bestiary books. And I found that all three of them work really well. The thing that I struggled with is it's hard for me to know which monster is in which book at which time when I'm doing my prep. I learned a trick though. So one nice thing about this is every bestiary book not only includes random tables for it, but it includes random tables for all of the other bestiary books, including the monsters that are in Numenera Discovery. So if you go to the bestiary three, it, you can see that it lists all of the monsters by level, again, level one to 10, and it tells you which book they're in. It also has random tables that you can roll for different sections. And this is really, one thing that Numenera depends upon is random tables for a lot of stuff. Random ciphers, random locations, random monsters. There's lots of random tables. And it helps you as a GM because you don't really understand the world. This is a way to make the world feel new and unique and exciting and really shake your brain I think Numenera more than any other RPG showed me how valuable random tables are. The whole Lazy DMs companion, a lot of the work that I've been doing on my Patreon with random tables, a lot of it comes from my experiences running Numenera where I saw how valuable random tables can be in our world. So definitely having lots of random tables for different monsters in different locations is really useful. And the neat thing is the monsters that are here in the bestiary three, the ones that are listed in these random tables are from all three books. So it doesn't help you if you just pick up book three. That's not real handy. You, you definitely want to pick them up in order. Start with book one, then book two, then book three. If you, or get all three. I would, I, would, I would pick up all three. If I was running a big campaign, I would get all three. If you're only running like a one shot, you can really just get away with Numenera Discovery and the monsters in there because you're not going to double up too much. And what I discovered, which is nice, is unfortunately in the random tables, it doesn't necessarily tell you which book the monster is in. But there's actually an index. So if I say, if I pick char, the, the Charn in the Wandering Martins, and we say the Charn, if I go down to the index, the index doesn't just include monsters from the core book. It includes monsters from all of their books that were published by the time you got to this one. So the Charn, for example, you can see here, Charn. The Charn is in the Bestiary 3, page 175. So it turns out it actually is in this book. So that's handy. The nice thing is that index, which I only just discovered, like it's, you know, it's been weeks since I've been doing this and I was struggling to figure out like, how do I know which monsters in which book? How do I figure that out? It was really a pain. What I've learned is that the index is right here. The index tells you which book it's in and what page number it's in that book. Really, really handy, really very smart design for this book. So I that makes all of the best area books really useful. The artwork, the artwork in particular is really fantastic. And a lot of times, because nobody really knows, you can you don't have to follow the lore that it has in here at all. It's kind of handy that it does. The summary is really good. But a lot of times you might just say, oh, yeah, that that particular monster, that definitely looks like something I want to use. But I'm just going to reskin it into something else. So you can use the artwork and just change the background and the story. I've done that a lot in my game. So I really I think the, the bestiary books are really, really valuable. They're, they're probably the most valuable books that I've picked up for Numenera and the ones that I've used consistently throughout my entire campaign. 
I love the random table so much in Numenera. I, had, I decided to do a couple of my own. And one of the things that I, I couldn't find a good set of random generators for locations as you were exploring. I wanted a little, I wanted something a little easier to use. I wanted something that had some wider and wider scale and scope. And I've been building a lot of similar generators for the Lazy DMs Companion. So I built two generators that I've used exclusively for my Numenera game, both of which are available to patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to become a patron of Sly Flourish, you help me with shows like this, but you can also pick up tools like this, the Science Fantasy Generator, and I have another one called the Cyberspace Generator. Why would you want cyberspace for Numenera? It turns out Numenera has cyberspace known as the data sphere. There's actually a whole book called Voices of the Data Sphere, which gets into this idea that there is essentially out there an, an, a, a massive internet, right? A massive cyberspace that's been around for millions of years and people live in it and entire entities exist in this cyberspace. So I def And we've been using that a lot in my campaign. So I built two generators for it. And the science fantasy generator lets me quickly build, I've been using it mostly for locations and monuments, things to fill in chambers or things to fill in larger locations, but I can also use it to, to develop items and things like that. It's been very handy. So that, that, and it fits right in with Numenera's focus on random tables. So that's both the science fantasy generator and the cyberspace generator have helped me fill this in. For cyber, the cyberspace generator in, in particular helped me out because trying to fill in this sort of virtual world, it's really hard to just come up with stuff, but it's a lot easier if I write up lists of 20 things and mix them together and roll some dice, I often come up with interesting things. So this has made it very easy for me to come up with really wild places that nobody would have expected when they're traveling around in cyberspace or if they happen to be just walking around in the regular world. So if you're a D&D DM and you're coming to Numenera, there are some things that you can just bring right over from your experiences running D&D. And there's some things that are going to be a little bit of a struggle. And what I found is that though the scope and the scale of Numenera is so big, though it's so vast and so weird and so strange and so many strange things, a lot of the standard approach that we take for doing our prep for D&D can transport right over to Numenera. A lot of the adventure structures are still the same. You're still trying to rescue somebody. You're still trying to capture an object. You're still trying to clear out a location location. You're still trying to hunt down a particular monster. You can use all of your standard quest tropes and therefore use a lot of the prep that you would normally use. You can use it directly in Numenera. I've been doing it now for four months or something like that. And I've, I've been able to bring over a lot of the kind of style that I use for prepping my D&D games directly into Numenera. The lazy DM prep process right out of Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. I've been using it directly in my Numenera game and it's worked really well. There are some things that are a little harder. And one is you have no frame of reference for monsters. I talked about this earlier, but it really matters when you're coming in as a DM. You kind of know what orcs are. You kind of know what hobgoblins are. You know what kobolds are. You know what were-rats are. You know what liches are. You know what ogres are. You know what giants are. A lot of this, especially if you've been running D&D for a while, you understand what these monsters are. There's some weird ones like, what is a bee here? I don't even know what that is, right? There are some that monsters that you're not going to know. In Numenera, you have no frame of reference, which is why it's so nice and kind of important to fall back to the bestiaries because the bestiaries are, are what are going to show you monsters that you wouldn't have experienced otherwise. And that use of random tables and the use of the bestiaries let you bring in monsters that neither you nor the players have ever seen. That's a little bit of a struggle, not having that frame of reference and therefore getting back to the idea of how many monsters are going to be deadly. I don't know. Normally I would say choose the number of monsters that make sense, but I don't know what makes sense because these monsters are completely new to me. That is definitely something that is a little bit, a little bit harder. You can largely reskin the kind of locations you have in D&D and just change them into something that's fantastic from Numenera. That, that, that science fantasy generator that I showed, that, that definitely helped with me. If you look at the locations list here, tower, statue, temple, academy, vault, ship, holosphere, laboratory, 
you know, a lot of those are things you could use straight out of D&D. I took some of those directly out of my list for D&D. But then you might add some different ones. Control room, ob- observatory, central processor, cryo vault, factory. Those don't quite exist. But a lot of the locations that you use in your traditional D&D games, you can just sort of reskin and reflavor. And then you can use things like use conditions, descriptions, and origins to kind of shake them up. Are they, is it a crystalline tower floating in space? Is it, you know, is it a, a keep made out of pure, one pure hunk of basalt? You can make them fantastic. You can still use your standard D&D kind of locations, but make them fantastic and change them up so that they fit the world of Numenera more so than they fit D&D. That's something that I've definitely, I've definitely seen. You're going to want to depend a lot on good inspiration. You're going to want to flood your mind with good fiction to think about the kinds of things you want to bring into your, to your game. And there's a bunch of different inspiration that worked for me that I wanted to bring up. The, you know, Dune, both the movie and the books definitely work well. Hyperion, the, the books Hyperion by Dan Simmons, fantastic series of four books, really big in scale and scope and in, in a Numenera kind of way. The video game Destiny, Destiny 2, I've been playing more of that recently, and that definitely has some cool ideas, big span, big scope kind of ideas that you could bring right into your, into your Numenera game. Horizon Zero Dawn and Horizon Forbidden West, two other fantastic games that talk about people who are living in the ruins of previous societies. I love them. Neuromancer, I've used for a lot of the cyberspace and the datasphere stuff. Tron is another one that you can use. Guardians of the Galaxy, I think, has a big scale and scope. Uh, the, the, the Dark Tower series by Stephen King is something that I pulled a lot of material from. So you're going to want to flood your mind with high, like science fantasy, high science fantasy, far out science fiction, not sort of the things Blade Runner, maybe, but like Blade Runner is so contemporary a lot of the times that some of it you can pick. So, so the more contemporary the science fiction, the less useful it is. The more far out the science fiction, the more, the more useful it is. It definitely helps. And it's so much fun, right? It's so much fun to think about all of these different sources of fiction that you've got. Even when the scope and the scale of the game goes really wide, you still get to fall back to the idea of a handful of characters going on adventures. It's the cornerstone of D&D. A bunch of characters getting together going on adventures. And even in my game where I have satellite, the characters have taken control of satellites that can drop tungsten rods on any place on the planet or any place in one third of the planet, which is the equivalent of like a 20 megaton nuclear bomb, or they're bringing out armies of dimensional traveling warriors to act on their side, or they're liberating towns. They're doing big scope, big scale, high important stuff. It still ends up the, the actual stuff that they do during a game session is like D&D. They're going into an old vault. They are trying to, they're talking to NPCs. They're fighting monsters. They're going on adventures. The results of their adventures are creating these massive scale and scope kind of ideas. But at the end, it still feels very much like a D&D adventure, which is great because I love running D&D adventures. So it, it really helps out. So you can always still kind of fall back fall back to that. So let's say you're kind of interested in Numenera, but you're probably not going to run it. Or maybe you run it for one session, but you're really interested in taking some of the experiences from Numenera and bringing it back into your D&D game. There are definitely things you can do. There's definitely things you can do for this. One is ciphers. I love ciphers. I talked about these. These are single use items. And in our D&D game, they can basically be a single use magic item. You can roll on a bunch of tables. You can come up with an interesting item and you can tie a powerful spell effect to it. I really like to take spell effects that are higher level than the characters. So they only get one use of it, but it's something way stronger than they normally get to use. They get to use an item that they'd only be able to use once. It can work out. It can work out really well. And that's something I took directly from Numenera. And in Numenera, they talk about the fact that these ciphers are powerful. These are these are powerful things. They're not just small things that do a 
you know, if it's a small thing, what does it matter? You can do things on your own. You don't need a cipher to do it. If you have a, a single use magic item that casts a cantrip, well, I can already cast cantrips. Maybe it's a, a, a magic item that can cast a cantrip at will that you don't have. Well, now that's useful. But generally speaking, you want to have like a powerful effect. Think of one or two or three or four or five spell levels ahead of what the characters are. What if you give fifth level characters access to circle of death? What if you give seventh level characters, characters a single use of meteor swarm? What are they going to do with that? So that's something from Numenera that you can bring right in. That idea of a single-use powerful magic item. I love it. I've been using it for a while. It works really well. The focus on high fantasy and, and that reinforcement of the fantastic. Numenera pushed my brain to go in that direction, to think big in scope, to think big in scale. And that transfers right over into your D&D world. Especially, we're talking a lot these days about Spelljammer. And Spelljammer is one where your typical low magic European traditional fantasy isn't going to play because it's big in scale and scope. So taking a lot of the big ideas from Numenera and just thinking about what those would be like in a D&D game gets you to think in a world of the fantastic. What are things that are just bigger in scale and scope than the characters typically see? You don't want just a ruined watchtower. What's fantastic about that ruined watchtower? What's fantastic about that old keep? What's fantastic about these underground chambers? What's something big in scale and scope? What's something big in age? What's something really where the characters go, wow, that's what you want to get. Numenera is flooded with that and it'd be great to bring some of that stuff into your D&D game. I really like this idea of like level-based challenges. And I wish I could take that and transfer that directly over to D&D. And you can't because the way D&D monsters are built, there isn't just a nice flat equation that you can use. There's something close. The Lazy DM's companion includes a little chart that says like at any given challenge rating, this is what the general stats of a monster would be like. The Dungeon Master's Guide has that too. It works pretty well, but there's definitely aspects where the monsters in D&D are just more complicated than a monster in Numenera. So you can't transfer that over directly but we can kind of take the philosophy in mind. We can kind of remember that monsters, especially after running Numenera for a while, you can recognize that lots of mechanical, crunchy statistics for D&D monsters probably aren't as important as you think they are. That's, that's a big tip that I got from Numenera. I've been running Numenera games for a while. I've been running it before, but now I've been running them a while. And my Numenera monsters from a mechanic standpoint are dead simple. Very, very simple monsters. In their story and their lore, they're really interesting. Flavor, it really teaches you how to use flavor to make monsters interesting. But the mechanics are really simple. And I bet you, you can use those same simple, I know you can, you can use these same simple mechanics in fifth edition D&D don't worry so much about the tactical crunchiness of a monster. The description can work really well. That's not for everybody. Some people really like their tactical crunchy monsters and that's great. But you can also go really far in a story with a simple monster. That's why I like reskinning giants. I love reskinning giants because they're so straightforward and simple. This game teaches us to, to, to do that. Numenera uses abstract combat. It does not have fixed distances for things like movement or for the ranged of weapons and things like that. And running games like Numenera, it shows that you can take that system and bring it back into D&D. If you want to use abstract maps, I know a lot of people like to use the grid. That's awesome. But you can also use abstract maps where you don't worry too much about fixed distances. You just say, are they generally within a move? Are they within 30 or 60 feet? You use these big blocks to determine things. 
And it can make running combat a lot faster and a lot easier. It gives good experience for running theater of the mind combat. A lot of my ideas for theater of the mind combat that I've promoted for fifth edition D&D, I got from games like Numenera. I also got them from games like 13th Age and Fate and other ones. But this idea of abstract combat works really well. It focuses on the big important things. It abstracts like five foot distances, which personally, I don't think the difference in five feet is that interesting. I think the distance in 30 feet is interesting. I think things exploding are interesting. I think huge fireballs sending dozens of people through the air is more interesting than whether or not you're five feet away from a monster or not you're not you cool you like your five foot distances that's awesome i really like abstracting that out and numenera is shows how you can abstract out distances you can abstract things out in a way so that you can focus on the big things going on in combat instead of the minute things that are going on in combat One of the things that Numenera really focuses on is that exploration is the primary goal. Your goal is not defeating monsters. You don't get experience points for picking up treasure. You don't get experience points for defeating monsters. You get experience points for exploration, for discovering things. And Numenera really emphasizes that idea of discovery. And again, that's something we can transport directly into our D&D games. It's a lot more interesting when getting to a place, when discovering things, when learning secrets is the actual drive of the campaign. It, It changes the theme of the campaign and it's really interesting. It doesn't mean you're not going to face monsters. It means that killing monsters is not the primary goal. Maybe for your version of D&D, killing monsters is the primary goal. That's cool, but there are other ways to do it too. And one of these other ways is that idea of focusing on discovery. And that's where you get into like discovery-based rewards, that when you discover this particular thing, when you locate this thing you're looking for, that's when you gain a new level. That's something you can bring right into your D&D game and works, works really, really well. There's a lot of really good RPG philosophy in these Numenera products. You can learn a lot of things about how role-playing games work by reading the stuff that's in Numenera. And one of the things that I picked up is this idea of movable keys. There's actually a book called Explorer's Keys, which is a book of 10 short scenarios for Numenera. It's a great way if you if you want a book that just has a bunch of like one-shot Numenera games, to, again, to help kind of shake up your brain. It's a really good, it's a really good approach. But one of the things that this adventure book does and that is a philosophy you can take into your D&D games, is this idea of movable keys. That an adventurer essentially requires that there's a particular key that you find in order to make progress. Maybe it's the MacGuffin that you're trying to pick up right at the end of the adventure, but maybe it's something that unlocks another piece of the adventure. And you can improvise where it is. That's something I picked up directly from this book. In fact, here's a little known secret. The original book of adventures that Numenera put out like this is my inspiration for Fantastic Adventures. I was like, that. what they did for Numenera was so great, I wanna do the same thing for D&D, and that's how I did Fantastic Adventures. So it works really well. In this one, they say, like, here are these keys. These are important things that the characters need to pick up in order to progress. But you get to move where they are. It kind of tells you, here's the default of where it goes. But you get to move where they are. And that was something that I picked up directly from the design of Numenera. So there's lots and lots of different aspects that you can pick up. So now I have sort of a hodgepodge of other thoughts that I've had about Numenera that I wanted to talk about. I found armor to be an odd concept. In Numenera, you pick up armor, you can get armor, and armor reduces the amount of physical damage that you take. The problem that comes up is when characters get to the point where they have like three armor, it means level three monsters and below serve no threat against them at all. It means that you can never really have swarms of small monsters that attack them and do anything. A lot of times you can take the swarm of a small monster and turn them into a big one. Numenera definitely has that idea of taking lots of small monsters and turning them into a big monster and just calling it, it's a bunch of small monsters, but it acts like a single level five threat. So you can still do that. But when the armor gets up to like three, again, the characters are taking so little damage, even from high, high threats. So like a level six threat, which is pretty significant. 
if a level six threat manages to hit a character who's got three armor, they only take three points of damage, which is very little. It does such an, a, a big amount of negation of damage that it actually changes the game a little bit. I'm not a, I'm not a big fan. Monsters also have this have armor, and I've largely skipped it. I don't think it's interesting. I think it's kind of it's kind of a it's kind of lame as a player to hear that oh you did six damage but it only takes three. I've just never bothered with it. If I want to do that, I'll just give it more hit points. I, it feels like everything is resistant to damage, and that's kind of a that 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 doesn't feel right. So I've a lot of time I have just I've I, all the time I've just skipped armor. I've skipped armor on the monster side. The players they pick up armor and then I'll just increase the damage to account for that. Uh, not not directly. Like I don't want to negate the fact that they picked up armor, but there are certain times where they're going to face a threat that should still be a threat. And because they have three armor, it's not really much of a threat. I'll either give it multiple attacks so it hits other people who don't have armor or, you know, we'll just nudge the damage up a little bit. But I didn't find armor. The, the idea of armor as a negation to damage, I didn't find, I, I didn't work, didn't work perfectly for me. And I skipped it for monsters completely. So even though the bestiary book has things like monsters that are slightly different, this is a level five monster. It has, it shows you what the target number is 15, but it has 20, it has 20 health and it has other modifications. Might, might and intellect defenses at level six. There's lots of little crunchy bits in a monster, particularly with the monsters that are in here. And that's great because you're like, you bought a book. You might as well get some tuning in it that's a little different. I've largely skipped that. I just use the 515 and I'm happy. If I want to tweak the dial, the dials of monster difficulty that I use in D&D, they transfer directly over to Numenera. It's really easy to say, oh, I'll just give it a little bit more hit points or I'll lower its defenses in certain areas or anything that I want to do to tune things based on the pace of the battle, I can just do right here. So I've largely ignored all of the statistics that they have for a monster. I just like the picture and maybe a little bit of the lore and i'll bring that in so that works that works really well that 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 has been something that i've enjoyed a lot i mentioned before that once i managed it was a bit of a struggle to think in the scale and the scope that numenera has but once i let my brain go in that direction it exploded that, that i could just go off in all sorts of different places i could think up really big thoughts huge artificial intelligence satellites floating around earth and massive otherworldly constructs that are trying to make their way through planar boundaries huge societies that exist only in the data sphere all kinds of like grand scope it took it took my brain it had to skip forward to get to that point but once i did my, it grabbed my imagination and ran free, and I've really enjoyed it for that. The, the scope and the scale of what's been happening in my Numenera game is way bigger than anything I've done in any of my D&D games. Something that's been interesting, I've talked to my players about this. The, 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 what's going on for the characters is largely opaque to me. I kind of don't know what it's like to play in Numenera at all. I regularly ask my players, are they enjoying it? Kind of, I ask them about what they kind of enjoy about their character and things like that, and they tell me about stuff, and I see things that happen, but I kind of don't know what's on their character sheets. I kind of don't know how things operate, but I will say that the players have been interested we've been playing now for weeks nobody has been getting like tired and bored and saying like hey what are we playing next they haven't they've been kind of into what's been going on so on the player side numenera is definitely crunchy enough to keep them going week after week after week which a lot of like light rules systems don't really accomplish that that you're, you're not going to really manage to keep people's attention over a long campaign in this one we have in this one they've been getting enough new things to keep their characters interested they've also built really rich and interesting characters so that's worked really well too but it's been very interesting that largely i don't i don't really worry about what's on the player side it just plays out it's, it's it's very interesting i would love it if there is either one big bestiary book or some kind of online system 
the more we're starting to play games online, the more I think game companies really need to think about what digital offerings they are providing. This is something where Level Up Advanced 5e from N-World Publishing has done a great job of putting digital tools out there of what they offer. I could really use a monster compendium that's online. Even when I have an index that's as good as the index in the Bestiary 3 that points to all of the other ones, that's really, really handy. Even more handy is some way for me to be able to quickly find monsters. And that has been, that's been tricky. I would definitely love it if they either put them all together into one big compendium. So I had all my monsters in one book or had some better online tool for me, me to be able to find it. One thing that Numenera has are cards for all of their monsters. They have, they have, a, you can buy card decks. I have them and I've never used them and I really should, but it's because I do a lot of my work online. I don't really use them, but you could just put all your monster cards together and use them that way. And if they were all in alphabetical order, then you could roll on your random tables and stuff like that and find them. That could definitely work. So I really love Numenera. I am so glad that I've had the opportunity to run a Numenera campaign for my group. It's something I've wanted to do for a long time. And finally, we got to the place where we got to do it. I enjoy it thoroughly. It's got like every role-playing game, Game, it's got little tweaky bits that I have to figure out, but nothing has gotten in the way of me being able to share a really big, a really fantastic story with my players around the table. I love it to death. It's taught me a lot about role-playing games. It's given me a lot of ideas that I've been able to transfer right into my D&D games, and it gave me a really good time playing with my friends and family. So I hope you enjoyed this video. If you did, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter, where you'll get new weekly D&D articles sent directly to your inbox. You can support me directly on Patreon, where you get access to things like the generators I was showing earlier, access to a whole bunch of other exclusive material, the City of Arches source book, exclusive adventures, a dedicated Discord channel. You can pick up any of my books on the Sly Flourish bookstore. There is a link to the Sly Flourish bookstore in the notes below. You can also share this video or send it to your friends, subscribe to it, like it, and let people know that you've enjoyed the work that I do here. Thank you all very much. Have a great day and get out there and play some Numenera.